Welcome back to the Future of Freight. This is Alan Adler. I am the Detroit Bureau Chief for Freightways, and I'm joined by Finch Fulton, the Vice President of Policy and Strategy at Locomation. Uh, Finch has a background in the government uh, with nearly four years as the Deputy Assistant Secretary of Transportation Policy for the Department of Transportation. He joined uh, uh, Locomation earlier this year and, uh, and is working on the strategy side and as well as uh, helping set policy for uh, locomation's uh, attempts in, in uh, autonomous trucking. Finch, it's great to have you. We've been together recently on another thing, something like this, so we, we sort of know each other, but I wanted to kind of start and jump right in to something that you've kind of indicated is pretty important, and that is the supply chain crisis. It's exposed many vulnerabilities in recent months. One of those is the driver shortage, which is now pegged at about 80,000 uh, drivers short. The population's aging. There's other pressures like the drug and alcohol clearinghouse that are reducing the number of drivers. But pay is a really big issue affecting both recruitment and retention. Um, you have some pretty strong feelings on that. What's your thinking? Yeah, well, obviously, pay is a big impact. Uh, if you look at the average large trucking fleet, the average turnover in a year is above 92%. Uh, and of that involuntary turnover where the truck driver wishes they could keep their job, that's at 20 to 30% of that total. So if you look at the factors, you mentioned things like drug and alcohol clearinghouse, um, but also the most common stress, the most common reason people leave otherwise is financial. Uh, two thirds of drivers say they don't have enough savings to cover upcoming expenses. And a big part of this pay shortfall is the unpaid time for drivers. As you know, and as we've talked about, drivers are typically paid by the mile. But when they're stuck waiting for a load uh, or in detention time, they're not getting paid. They're not spinning the wheels and generating revenue. So there's not a lot of great stats on this. We've seen that the Department of Transportation's Office of Inspector General has tried to take a look at this. ATA through um, the Trucking Research Institute has taken a look at that. Uh, OIDA has taken a look at this. Best guesses are that it's costing them 3% annually in pay, but it can be up to 20 hours a week that they're just stuck in attention time, not getting paid. So it's a significant issue for these truck drivers. And I think it's having real impacts on our supply chain. Let's talk a little bit more about detention. It's it, in some ways it's unavoidable, but it's also sort of a a, a, a corollary really to inefficiency. Uh, either at the shipper, uh, really the truck driver is just sort of uh, I don't like the term victim, but it's sort of victim here, uh, not not the uh, not the cause of the problem basically. And you know some of these facilities uh, really don't even provide you know good uh, way way station type uh, equipment that or or a lot of them don't even provide good bathrooms. That's what I was going to say. I was getting at that. I mean, you know, there's not, never mind the snack machine, there's nowhere to go to the restroom. So yeah. I guess the question then is tension is a bigger issue really than just the pay, right? I mean, you know, there are bigger issues there. Yeah. Well, and this is something that I should note is a bipartisan issue that's being studied. It's something that FMCSA has studied before. They have another planned study and Congress is urging them on. You'll see, I don't know what's going to happen with this infrastructure bill. But in there is another requirement for the FMCSA to work with their partners to study this. But FMCSA doesn't need to be told to do anything. Um, one of the things we saw in uh, Deputy Administrator Mira Yoshi's um, confirmation hearing to become the administrator, um, she flagged that really you have to create incentives for the shippers. You know, if they aren't, if they don't have to deal with the fact that they keep drivers waiting for hours on end, they have no incentive to move faster and to help them get their loads to move forward. So. They're looking at how you might shift to more of a pay-by-the-hour model uh, that, that brings on, um, includes shippers in the additional pay for truck drivers to pay them for this downtime. And we've seen different 
pushes for this, either with Department of Labor and their interpretations of the law, with how Department of Transportation can look at this. They can make changes, you know, soon, definitely in the first term. But if you look at what Deputy Administrator Yoshi did when she was in New York City, uh, she was in charge of the pay of drivers for taxi drivers and the like. And there were 80,000 truck drivers, sorry, 80,000 drivers in New York City uh, when she led the administrative body that was in charge of them. And what she did is she did a lot of studies getting voluntary information from these drivers about their pay and their time on the road. And she couldn't set a minimum wage for them because they're independent contractors, much like truckers today. But she found a way to go by the mile and by the minute, as she said, uh, to be able to pay them the equivalent of a minimum wage in New York. And so she was able to pull some of these data collection efforts together with the administrative authority she had in that role and was able to change the way drivers were paid in New York. I foresee this happening in the first term for truck drivers, uh, whether it's with a partnership with the Department of Labor or just straight up from FMCSA. Uh, I expect there to be significant changes in the way truck drivers are paid more to the by the hour approach um, that we'll see in the near future. So that means if I'm hearing you correctly, that means the shippers can continue to behave badly. They'll just be paying for it. Well, that's not bad behavior if you're paying for it. If you're valuing people's time. Yeah. Okay. Fair enough. Uh, let me ask you, uh, the, the locomation level four autonomous convoys uh, make high autonomy, the underlying engine of, of uh, twin trucks. The approach is unique compared to some of the startups that are focusing on single truck and trailer operating without a driver. Both use some form of mapping and route ID. How well do you see these existing, Finch? Yeah, well, I mean, frankly, I see Locomation's approach being out on the road legally, safely, conducting routine operations uh, for revenue at scale years before anyone else is going to be able to do it because we have a human-led, human-centric approach. Um, we are still developing autonomous trucks that can operate by themselves, but I think there's always going to be a world where on some routes with some cargo for some customers, you're going to want a human present and in the loop. Uh, so I think these approaches will coexist. And again, if you look at the linked two-truck human-led convoy, you're bringing in things like additional fuel efficiencies. You're bringing in things like generating twice the revenue per driver. You're able to change the way this works and then get some of those increased fuel efficiencies which reduces emissions and increases the profitability of the operation. So there's no reason why you would cut that off just because additional technology becomes available because that technology doesn't do all of the same things and doesn't incorporate the human in the same way. And there's a lot of things that humans can do better than machines. And that's going to be true for a long time to come. Humans are pretty clever if you get down to it. Well, you start out with with uh, two trucks, two drivers, and ultimately go to two trucks, one driver. I mean, that's kind of the, the, the way it works. Um, you know, we, we have a driver shortage, as we talked about in the front of this discussion. Um, you're going to staff with two drivers to get started. Are you going to have trouble finding the drivers and things like that to do that? Well, I don't think so, because if you look at the way the system operates, drivers are able to generate twice as much revenue uh, with their truck as they are today. So if you're looking at the downtime that drivers have, as you know, drivers are allowed to drive for 11 hours a day. They're allowed to work for 14 hours a day, and then they have to rest for 10 hours a day. So the amount of time a driver is spent in their vehicle not making money is dramatically increased. If you can have them be able to get that rest while the vehicle's moving and generating revenue and delivering those loads, suddenly you've changed the way this entire system works, and you're able to squeeze out a lot more efficiencies, a lot more uptime from your vehicles. You're able to get more for every mile. So it changes the way the system operates. I think that there's going to be room for this approach for a long time because of that. And it has dramatic impacts to drivers' quality of life, to their pay, 
you know, it gets them home. If you organize it right on the back end, which we intend to do, they can get home every night. And so some of the other issues that impact driver turnover, you know, regardless of pay, are those quality of life issues. And if you start to take care of those things, you'll slow down that turnover and hopefully reverse it so that drivers go after these jobs and will actively seek out carriers and partners that incorporate this technology because they know it makes their life better. It makes them safer and it improves their quality of life overall. That's what we're working towards. And I think we have to prove it. And I think we are going to be proving it over the course of the next year leading into our first deployments. Yeah. The, um, this suggests that you'll be on routes rather than sort of a long haul type thing. I know you've identified, uh, you know, certain routes that are sort of uh, more dense in terms of uh, freight and things like that. And, and, and Wilson Logistics, which is one of your customers, is already working on, on identifying which of their routes makes the most sense and, and that sort of thing. Um, so, so really, we're talking kind of a middle mile type approach. Right. I mean, as far as getting these guys home, because because it, 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 you know, if I've got two trucks out there and, you know, I get to the end and then I come back, then, yeah, I'm, I'm home. Right. If I'm doing what, 250 miles or 500 miles a day. Right. Thousand miles a day, essentially. Yeah. I mean, you're right. It takes some of the back end organization to make it happen. I mean, and that's a key part of it. But as you look at this, let's say you're looking at 100 percent of Wilson's routes. Let's say 80 percent of them are those routine routes a day. That's where the focus is. And it is middle mile in that sense to where you don't have to solve every route every day. But also because you have humans as part of the mix, you're not limited to your final destination point. You can get off the freeway, off the interstate, and the human drivers drive to the warehouse or to the delivery point that they're talking about. They don't have to stop at an intermediary hub the way some other models are being worked out because the drivers just take over the same way they do today. So I wouldn't call it middle mile, but I would say you focus on those high volume routes uh, and that network, the 88% of the freight that goes on America's freeways, that's the that's what you can capture. Because again, looking at federal highways statistics, 88% of the cargo is on these massive freight routes. And so if you look at that, that 88%, if you focus on that and capture that, that's where you get those efficiencies and that's where you can make those changes. Right, right. Um, I want to switch a, switch up on you a little bit here, although it's something I think you're quite familiar with. You've actually written on it, and that's this regulation. It's a, a big part of advancing autonomous trucking to commercialization. Um, you've created a chart of milestones to get there. Um, can you walk us through those? Sure. And I, I like that you asked me to bring this back. That means you liked it the first time I talked about it, because we talked about this last time we got together. Um, I so, just have to learn twice. <laughs> um, so... Today, it's well established that the driver of a commercial motor vehicle can be a human or a machine, right? However, there are areas in commercial trucking that explicitly require a human. Uh, things like how to conduct an inspection, maintenance, repair, uh, especially unexpected repairs, as well as being able to interact with law enforcement and to be able to handle all the duties they have. So the FMCSA rulemaking that we're talking about is up on the screen, um, but the one relevant to automated trucks is key that would prevent other companies from removing their drivers. So this rulemaking either needs to pass or everyone else has to come to agreement on alternative means of compliance. How do you achieve the things that the rules require that the rules explicitly say a human have to do uh, while still being able to remove your driver from the vehicle? So that rulemaking was supposed to come out this month. Um, it hasn't, and it doesn't sound like it's anywhere close to coming out. Uh, and what you know, what you what you see often is if everyone knows how to answer a rule and what the end result is going to be, and everyone agrees on it, it takes about a year to a year and a half for it to work through this whole regulatory process. 
not everyone agrees on everything. And groups like organized labor uh, and even the owners and independent operators groups are against it because they're worried about what it means for them. Now, no truck driver today should worry about losing their job. But the fact is, they aren't on the sideline. They're opposing this. So it's a big question as to whether or not FMCSA is going to move forward with this rulemaking that they've indicated that they will and they've said the right things about. Um, but certainly people are worried about whether or not they will move forward with this rulemaking and get it done in the first term of this administration. I'm sorry, on the FMCSA one, which is the first one on your on your chart and the one that probably has to kick off everything else, really, in a way. Uh, there are alternatives that that I think you're part of the self-driving uh, group of locomotionists. And, and I understand there's a, a good bit of collaborative work going on. For example, let's take something like triangles, uh, you know, that, that have to be put out in, in the case of a truck. There are other ways to get at this. Uh, you know, maybe that's a little bit of an archaic, arcane sort of approach. It goes back decades, right? Uh, you know, maybe you have uh, something digital on the truck that is maybe even in the shape of a, a triangle that shows that, you know, that you have a truck in distress or something like that. I mean, you all can begin working on those things now. You don't need to wait for an, uh, an NPRM to do that. No, certainly not. And that's what I was talking about with alternative means of compliance. So uh, we are a member of CBSA, the Commercial Vehicle Safety Association, and they're leading the effort. They're who FMCSA looks towards on these sort of items. Um, and so you're talking about a regulation that's so old, they measure in paces the distance between the back of the truck and where you have to put these triangles. So there's been all sorts of ideas for how you can do it. Everything from sort of remote control car that can go out and drop them to, you know, hiring Ubers or AAA to go out. And when they get a signal that the truck is down, somebody has to go drive out there and just put the cones down or put the triangles down behind it. There have been some other ways that people have been thinking about with some sort of visual indicator on the truck. But so far, um, those aren't ready. And also, there is a limitation of what the law, what the regulation actually says. And so you are limited to the confines of what is written down and what is law today. Until they update that, you have to comply with that. And the limitation there is there are some things that will make more sense that are commonsensical that would be a, that would be achievable if you updated the regulation. But right now we're limited to the confines of the law uh, that never intended to be in this situation. And so the groups are getting very creative with trying to figure out how to solve this problem. They don't have the answers yet. We don't have the answers yet. Um, but there's a lot of effort around it. Yeah. Let's take us through the other four real quickly. Just uh, click through the NITSA, the NITSA things, would you? Absolutely. So the, two of the NITSA ones are pretty important. You've got the one around safety, uh, the safety framework. And this is one that we started back when I was at DOT. This is how do you take all of these industry-developed consensus-based standards, stack them on each other to prove safety and to prove the safety of the operations, and to be able to test yourself. Did you think of this sort of challenge and that prove that you thought of it and mitigated it? It's both an engineering spec and a process approach. Uh, and so bringing this together and putting it in a rulemaking, this will be the first time that the federal government, that the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration has regulated the operation of a vehicle, not just standards for what a new vehicle has to achieve um, just with equipment. So that one is going to be probably the biggest, most important rule for the future of automated vehicles as a whole uh, that we're going to see. Uh, and it's you know, going to move along slowly, but I, it'll probably be done in the next, we're looking at five to eight years uh, for that rulemaking to get done. The other niche of rulemaking is just about uh, the standards that exist, how to make some of those additional tweaks and updates to them uh, to be able to accommodate automated vehicles because it was probably too prescriptive in the past. And so it's to update it to make it more performance-based so that it can incorporate new technologies more easily while still proving safety. 
Uh, the one on the bottom of the chart that I think you're looking at uh, talks about telltales and indicators. And this is some of the things where we're talking about with how do you indicate, you know, the status of a vehicle, what its intent is, how do you make sure that people around it understand what a vehicle is going to do before it does it so they can be ready for it. Uh, and then there's one on automatic emergency braking. That's just relevant for trucking companies. You need to know that that's going to be a requirement in the future. But the last one is actually interesting because it's around emissions. So it's an EPA NHTSA rule. Uh, and as you know, by law, uh, fuel standards go up every few years. So we see that we already have standards set for 2027 uh, for commercial motor vehicles. Those are going to be very, very difficult to accomplish with today's technology. You pretty much have to bring in new technology to be able to accomplish that. And the rules that are going to be set for 2030, the, the notice of proposed rulemaking is going to come out this April. Uh, and I do think that'll be on time. And that's where we're going to start seeing to where to get those future standards, you have no choice but to bring on new technologies, new approaches, and to figure out a new way to do things because you can't get there with today's technology at all. No question about it. So you have to focus on these things and shape these things and make sure that you're giving your input to them because these will be the things that shape the future of trucking and the future of the industry and the going forward. If you're not planning for them now and if you're not adopting these technologies and thinking through them, you're going to be left out in the future and you're going to be behind. And you'll probably be paying your competition for fuel credits. Uh, and so you'll be really, really upset at yourself for not thinking proactively about these things. It will cost you. Let's just take that to the powertrain, because I'm sure that's really where, where the, the savings come. We're, we're, we're talking electric powertrains, perhaps, uh, you know, hydrogen power, things like that. Uh, I don't know how, how much appetite, especially in California, is for hybrids uh, and, and so forth, or natural gas, even RNG is you know, promising, but not necessarily proven. Uh, I guess the, the, the question I have then is, uh, will this rulemaking line up with the timing for autonomous trucks or will it trail? Will it, will it perhaps lead? I mean, you know, you said five to eight years on the NHTSA stuff. Is that sort of in sync with where autonomy is going? So it's interesting because uh, we talked about, people often talk about their concerns with the patchwork approach from the states. So every current autonomous vehicle maker has to comply with federal standards, um, but those focus on the vehicle's capabilities itself, not necessarily how the vehicle operates. As you know, states have always regulated how the driver operates because the driver's always been a human. And so it's a new approach to it. And states, of course, are weighing in on the operations of automated vehicles, whether it be light duty or commercial motor vehicles. And this is okay. This is a feature of the American system. It's not a bug. It's okay for California to have a different level of comfort than Texas. They can use this to think through how to embrace innovation, how to bring it into their systems. And ultimately, it's a benchmark of the American system that in places that are more, that are more comfortable with technology that want to embrace it, they can, they can encourage it and bring it in. And those that want to wait can. You don't always have to have a top-down, you know, federal approach where you come in and say, no, these are the rules, you get no choice. You can let innovation percolate up in the states, have different states try out different approaches, different levels of um, embracing the technology, different pilots, different opportunities. This is okay. So obviously, we're going to be looking to deploy in California. We're going to be looking to deploy, you know, Washington State and the Midwest. Uh, depending on who our next customers are, it sounds like we'll be deploying in a lot more geographic areas, including Texas. So we have to look at all of these standards. And ultimately, we have to be able to prove safety to the hardest standard out there. And the fact that we're already aligning with what NHTSA is thinking about doing in the future and the highest levels that California could ask, 
means that it doesn't matter what state we're going to deploy in. Once we've proved that and proved the highest levels of safety and show how we've done it and be able to communicate it to everyone, that should open the door for us to be able to operate in all 50 states. Those that are concerned about a patchwork approach are probably not taking the highest levels or probably not taking it seriously enough. You should be fine with hitting these high standards for safety if you're doing all the right things. But isn't it, and I'm going to leave it here because we're out of time, but isn't it really a question with California that that just as it has with emissions, it's going to basically continue to push for electrification connected to autonomy rather than separate from it? And I, and I don't have much time here, but please give me your thought on that. So you should keep the different uh, use cases apart. Obviously, you have to have a foundation on things like safety, but I've seen studies that show that it's not even going to be economically viable for commercial motor vehicles to be electrified in the way people want them to until closer to 2030. Um, That's part of some of the things I've seen out of the 21st Century Truck Partnership Program that the Department of Energy leads. Uh, As these technologies come on board, you need to figure out ways to embrace them. But if you try and mandate a technology before it's ready and force it, it can have unintended consequences, and ultimately people can reject it. We've seen this with other areas. We've seen this with airbags. They tried to preemptively mandate it, and people got hurt because they weren't ready yet. And so it delayed the integration of airbags into the light-duty fleets for years, costing thousands and thousands of lives because they were overeager and didn't work alongside the pace of innovation. Those that want to mandate an electric vehicle future need to just think about the incentives and a pull approach instead of a push approach. Because if you force it before it's ready, it'll collapse. So it's just about partnership and collaboration on that. So so since your your passion comes through on all of these subjects, really, really appreciate having you uh, here today with us as part of the uh, Future of Freight. Thanks very much. Yeah, thank you very much for having me. I enjoyed it.